Good morning, church. It is very good to sing with you again, uh, and it's very good to see your faces. I'm glad that we can gather to- together again. If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of First Thessalonians. I hope that you've been able to track somewhat with the series through um, the online that we've been doing over the last few weeks. We've still been going through this book. Um, just to give you a little bit of a, a recap, if you are a little lost, uh, the city of Thessalonica uh, it was in a, a region called Macedonia in northern Greece as it is today. And Paul had planted a church there and soon after planting the church was forced out of the city. He had to leave this um, little fledgling church to face persecution there. And it seems like opposition has seized the opportunity to slander Paul. Paul doesn't care about you. Look, he's just abandoned you. He's probably just using you for fame or glory or something else. And Paul knows that it's not just his own integrity that's in question. He knows it's the integrity of his message as well, the message of the gospel at stake. And so the very security of this church is at stake. And so in chapter 2, where we are today, Paul is defending his ministry. And last week we looked at the first six verses. We're going to look at the second portion of this unit, verses 7 to 12 of chapter 2 today. But let's read it all together for some context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And then our passage But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Dear God, we come again this morning, gathered gratefully and expectantly for what you are going to do through your word. We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and ask that you would challenge your church, grow our community, we pray. Amen. 
We met our son Judah, our middle child, when he was five months old. Uh, we visited him for about a month in his orphanage before we were allowed to take him home. And he stayed in our care, our foster care, for two whole years before the adoption order went through. And I remember that day in court quite vividly. We waited in eager anticipation the entire morning um, for our turn before the, the judge. And we were eager, but we were also nervous. Nothing was guaranteed until that stamp of approval was given. We didn't know what the judge would say or how he'd feel about cross-cultural adoption. For two years, we'd been praying. We've been praying that there would be no earth-shaking problems, that there would be no opposition seeking to take our son away from us. Our, our turn finally came to see the judge, and we sat in her chambers in silence for quite a while, and that silence was punctured every now and then with little trivialities, what's your name, what's your address, things like that, until finally all the judge said was, are you sure about this? This cannot be undone. There's no changing your mind after today. I remember thinking to myself, you haven't got the slightest clue about the amount of prayer that has gone into this moment. We've walked into these chambers knowing full well in our hearts that it does not matter what you say to us today, Judah is our son. We're sure, I think, is all we ended up saying. Ray and I have been afforded a tiny taste of the love that God the Father has for us as his children, adopted through his election into his own family. That's never to be reversed, never to be undone. Ever secure are we until we see him face to face and he completes his work in our lives. And we pray for Judah that he would grow up with that, that same knowledge, that same security, that he is chosen by his parents and loved. We pray even more than that, that he would grow up to know that same identity that we have in Christ as loved by a father with a love that will never fail and never leave us. And Paul wrote to suffering Christians. They were facing social ostracism in their city, and many of that probably even in their own homes. And he loved them. He wanted them to know that they were not abandoned. He wanted them to cling to, his, to their identity. Remember in chapter 1, verse 4, he had said, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. They are they were the loved children of the Father, part of the very family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul is writing to encourage them in that. It's interesting when he describes now his work among them and his love for them that he uses the, the metaphor of being like a mother to them and being like a father to them. There's something in there in what gospel ministry should be like. There's something in that in what we should see in the life of the church. So very simply, that's what we're going to do to, today. We're going to consider Paul's two metaphors. First, how he was like a mother to them, and then how he was like a father to them, and then finally, how as we see this in the life of the church, we reach and attain and strive for a common goal. Number one, 
Number one, faithful servants are self-giving like mothers. Verse seven, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I think about Paul, there's many things I think about. You think of his strength, right? And his courage, this man facing the great tribunals of the world, preaching the gospel to them unapologetically. Maybe you think of his passion in defending the gospel, his scathing remarks to the Judaizers who were trying to lead churches away. Paul knew how to deal with wolves. He was a a task-orientated, on-the-go church planter. But gentle like a mother? It's not the first thing that comes to mind, is it? Well, John Stott writes, he says here, it is a lovely thing that a man as tough and masculine as the Apostle Paul should have used this feminine metaphor. He displayed the gentleness, love, and self-sacrifice of a mother. The word for care here in the verse is used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the care of a mother bird for her young. A bird is on a completely fixed schedule. A mother bird conforms her life to the needs of her young. And that's actually just like a, a human mother as well, a mother of a newborn, right? She takes initiative to pattern her life around the needs of this newborn now in her care. There is no one more self-giving. There is no one more self-sacrificing than a new mother. Fathers don't hold a candle here, do they? You won't hear moms talking like dads do about babysitting the children. Sheree always says to me, it's not babysitting when they're your own offspring. My wife's patience is is unbelievable. I, I come out of my office at 5 p.m. and I... If I spend 45 minutes with them before dinner and I'm patient with them the entire time, I pat myself on the back like I'm the the best parent since God in the garden. And Sheree's been with them the entire day, dealt with the nappies, the never-ending pointless stories, the the petty squabbles that they have. And there's a a bond, right, in those first few months between a mother and child that fathers can only be witness to. It's why only women coo over newborn babies, right? Let's be honest. When babies come, they they come looking like aliens with potato faces. I remember my children fondly, but uh, the fun really started from about four months on. Before that time, I didn't even exist. The only person in their world was mom. And I had to be content observing this incredible bond that they had. Paul says here, we came and we were gentle like a mother is with her own children. Now they came and they preached with boldness. They preached the gospel with boldness, but real boldness is not at odds with that same gentleness. And if you were in that early church and you interacted with Paul and Silas and Timothy, what you would have experienced was warmth and care and love. Verse 8, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul might have been a a get-it-done, church-planter kind of guy, but he had a heart for people. 
He, he didn't see people as a means to an end. They weren't just pieces on a chessboard. His preaching, therefore, flowed from a place of real desire for their good, a real heart for the lost. And as he says, they were ready to share more than the gospel. They were ready to share their own selves. One commentator, I love it, he says, Paul's ministry to Thessalonica was not a hit-and-run gospel invasion. It didn't keep uh, or preach the gospel and, and keep listeners at arm's length. The apostolic team knew this. If you love somebody enough that you really desire that the gospel that has changed and transformed your life would take root in theirs, it requires more than just words, not less than words. Certainly not less than actual words. He preached the true gospel without apology. But it is more than just words. What is required is, is passion for what you preach and the expenditure of your very self, your time, your presence. See, gospel intentionality in the life of the church means both of these things. Faithfulness to the gospel of God and being devoted to people, loving people, being concerned and caring for people. And so before we move on, I want to ask as a church, I want to ask us a couple questions. Do you think there's this same gospel intentionality among us? The, the mother-like gentleness Paul speaks of here is a focused gentleness. It flows from real affection, real desire for the well-being of others in Christ. It's more, therefore, than just friendliness. It's more than just being nice. Are we intentional about the gospel in our relationships with one another? Do we go deeper in our conversation than last night's rugby score or last week's current event? Are we opening up our hearts to one another for the purpose of being shaped together by the gospel? And is there the same self-giving care? I, what I love about this church and really appreciate is I, I believe that we are a generous church. I've seen people um, meet the needs of those in their home groups. I've seen people rise to the occasion when we've called for uh, food relief drives and we give generously, I believe, to the mission of God. But are we a people ready to give of our very selves? Are we generous with our time and with our presence? And I know in this current day that this very thing is being severely tested worldwide. Ask every church and they'll tell you ministries are struggling to find volunteers. Our togetherness has suffered because we are called or told to self-isolate, to be separate and apart. And worldwide, there's this debate in the church. We keep talking about it as pastors. How much value is there in the online service? I keep hearing the same things. I'm, I'm gaining much at home, and I'm still gaining much value from the preaching of the Word online. And that is all well and good, but the very question is indicative of something that is askew in our thinking, that when we gather, it's about what I gain and what I get out of it. Paul says, when we were with you, we were ready to give of our very selves. 
When was the last time you came to church with this mindset, ready to give, ready to seek out whoever is lonely, ready to come with a word of encouragement for somebody, something prepared, ready to pray for somebody? You know, we've started this prayer ministry, and I know changing the numbers and everything has not, not been easy, but this, this ministry where um, after the service we have people up front to pray for whoever needs it, we should be lining up as a people for a ministry like that. Are we ready to give of ourselves? I'm, I'm not speaking to you from a position of superiority, like you, I have enough cares of my own, but we are followers of the one who left the glory of heaven and gave himself for us. The church ought to mirror that same attitude of Christ, shouldn't it? Number two, faithful servants are self-replicating like fathers. Are self-giving like mothers and self-replicating like fathers. Paul uses another metaphor where he keeps it in the family in verse 11. And he says, like fathers we were with you, like fathers are with their own children. Now you, you cannot overestimate the importance of a father's example. If you look at this next picture, this is Norman Rockwell's 1959 painting called Sunday Morning. Can you, can you all see it there? You see this little family there off to church, or at least a, a mother, two daughters, and a, a son, pristine and proper, like ducks in a line. Where's the father? He's slunk down, isn't he? He's hiding behind his easy chair, disheveled, maybe a little bit hungover from the night before, hiding like Adam in the garden. All the girls are looking forward as if unperturbed, noses up. But can you see that, the little boy at the back? His gaze is cut directly across at his father. And the message of this painting is quite sharp, is it not? This boy may be going to church with his mother today, but he's looking to his father. Little boys become like their dads. You know, when the Bible speaks to parents, who does it address? The Bible addresses fathers. Men been given the role of leadership in the home. They're meant to take responsibility for the moral and the spiritual formation in the home. And though it's a generalization, it's not a rule. There is the grace of God and there's also no guarantee when it comes to parenting. We know that the role of the father is crucial in the home, not just for little boys as well. His stable and tender and strong, loving and affectionate Presence is an important security for little girls as well. Good fathers know the importance of their attentive presence and their example. And if they're concerned for the legacy that they leave, they know that they have to be present and godly. Likewise, leaders in the church need to understand the importance of their example. The importance of godliness. John MacArthur says it is not enough for leaders just to be compassionate, tender, and caring as spiritual mothers, but also need, they also need to live lives that in their motives and actions set the standard for all to follow. Furthermore, they need to teach the truth faithfully and call their children to spiritual obedience. 
the role of the leader to, to live it out and to call people to follow, to be obedient to Christ. And Paul and his team, while preaching the gospel, don't want anything to hinder that preaching. And so firstly, in verse 9, we see that though it would have been right for them to receive pay for what they did, they refused that pay while they were amongst the Thessalonians. While planting the church, he says in verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Night and day they worked so that they wouldn't be a stumbling block for the gospel. Now we know Paul himself expected churches to take care of their leaders. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And we know Paul himself was grateful for the support of churches. In fact, when he went to the city of Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 11, we know that the Thessalonians were supporting him there. But he chose for the cause of the gospel not to ask anything of them while he was planting this church. So was his heart that the gospel would take root among them. Secondly, Paul knows that the, the instruction, he, his fatherly instruction of verse 11 had to be backed up by something that we see in verse 10. We are commanded to be not just hearers of the word, right, James says, but doers of the word. Well, if you don't live it out yourself, yes, by the, the mercy and the, the spirit of God, don't even bother teaching it is the point. Verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Imagine being able to speak with the confidence of Paul. There's no opposition, no slander that they could bring that's going to stick. Of all the requirements that we place on our leaders, surely this ought to be at the forefront. This ought to stand out. As one pastor once said, my people's greatest need from me, what they need from me most, is my personal holiness. It's what we need in our leaders. And so, with their life backing up the message, Paul describes this fatherly instruction in verse 11. And this apostolic ministry ought to be mirrored in the life of the church. It ought to be on display among us. This is not, by the way, just an example for your leaders to follow. This is for all of us. We ought to set this as a tone for the culture of our church. For you know, verse 11, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Those are three different words. Exhorted, encouraged, charged. That word exhorted is the Greek parakaleo. Parakaleo. Has anyone, does that ring a bell for anyone? At the back, you were here this morning, though. <laughs> yes. In John 14 to 16, this is the verb form of the, the word that Jesus uses to describe the, the role, who the Holy Spirit is, helper, counselor, advocate. Paul's saying, this is what we did among you. As we obey Jesus and are receptive to the the teaching and the leading of the Holy Spirit, we become like that in the lives of others. 
That's what we hope to do. We exhort. We come alongside and call out, literally the word means. He says, we encouraged you. And that word implies comfort. It implies consolation. But not just with empty words, with deep words, meaningful words, with the truth. We see a beautiful example of this in the book of 1 Samuel. David, you remember, was being mistreated by Saul, being pursued by Saul. And Jonathan, who's Saul's son, but David's friend, comes to him. 1 Samuel 23, 16, went to him at Horesh, and it says, strengthened his hand in the Lord. That's the idea behind this word. Strengthened his hand in the Lord. When life deals with us in blows, what we need is somebody to come alongside, a brother and sister in Christ to come alongside and help us at times to believe again the promises of God. And he says, finally, we charged you. Now that's a a strong word. From that word, we actually get the word martyr, to be witness, to bear witness. In this context, it means coming alongside a people who are feeling the weight of their calling and urging them forward. There is one direction that we are going, and that is faithfulness even now to our Savior. And taking these words together, it implies a a balance that ought to exist in the church, a balance of tenderness and understanding on the one hand and uncompromising call to allegiance on the other. We call one another to obedience. It requires a mixture of courage and compassion and implies a culture of openness in the church. And that culture is a culture that belongs to all of us. It doesn't belong only to your leaders. We exhorted each one of you, Paul says. Every single believer needs this. We are not, no one is an island. Every believer needs somebody, a community of believers around them who are welcomed, even expected to speak directly into their lives, including when it means pointing out where we're falling short. Do you have those people around you who are allowed to speak frankly and directly to you and who know when to encourage you? Preaching is is not enough by itself. It's not enough by itself. I've heard one pastor call it the the air warfare of what happens in the life of the church. When you invade a nation, you go in first with the planes and you drop the bombs. That's what this is. I'm dropping general bombs among you. But what you need after that is ground warfare. People on the ground, in the trenches, searching out the nooks and the crannies. That's what we need in community as a people. And in a church this size... It's not going to happen from your pastors. It just isn't. We can't fulfill that role. You need to have community around you of people who are are caring for you. It's why as a church we emphasize so strongly the need for every person to be a part of home group or some kind of smaller community in the life of the church. And I think we desperately need, if we want to thrive in this next season, to be a people who are shaped together by the gospel, feeding one another, calling out to one another, coming alongside one another with the same aim, the same direction. Number three, faithful servants have a common goal, a common goal. There are very few passages that afford us a better glimpse into the heart of Paul than this passage. 
And what we see here is not a preacher who was detached, but one who knows what every single parent ought to know. If you want to leave a legacy of children who are faithful to the Lord, of children who grow up into full maturity, you can't just speak at them. You have to live that life yourself. You have to live it out. And they have to see the sincerity and the passion in your life. And they have to know your presence so that your goal would become their goal. Your purpose, their purpose. That's what I pray for my children. That's what I pray for your children. And this apostolic team gave themselves wholly to the church. And they remained pure in their, con in their co conduct. And why is that? Because in every way they hoped for the church what they themselves hoped for and desired for themselves. To see God. That's the goal. To know God. To enjoy Him forever. And so there was the singular focus in their ministry. We exhorted you, eleven, each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to, to what? This is serious. To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is what it means to be a Christian, to walk in a manner worthy of God. And this is not a once-off for Paul. It's not the first time we've seen him speak to the church like this. To the Ephesians, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To the Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. To the Colossians, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This must be the ideal that we hold up. It's the ideal that we require of one another. We encourage one another and call one another to obedience to Christ. We exhort each other to this. This is not legalism. It's not trying to earn our salvation. We know in this that we are not neglected children who must earn the approval and the love of a, an absent father, right? I say this because even as we talk about walking in a manner worthy of God, maybe there's a sinking feeling in your heart. What does that, that even mean? How could I possibly, how could I possibly ever live in that way? How could I live worthy of God? This is not about doing it all in your own strength. It's not even about perfection and, and never failing. But it is about, and this is what it means to be a Christian. It is about having this deep desire in your heart. I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. I want to live a life that's pleasing to my Father. He has called you, it says, into His kingdom. A better kingdom than any earthly paradise. And so the call is to live a life knowing who your king is and committing to following him. He's calling you into his glory, it says. That glory outshines any earthly pleasure. And so the call is to live a life where you refuse to trade that glory for shiny junk. And he is a perfect father we know whose love never fails. Like we know with, with Judah, our son, adoption is not a reversible process. God doesn't change his mind about his children. 
So how? How do you live a life worthy of God? It starts here, secure, in the love of a perfect Father who cannot and will not abandon you. It comes from desiring to see His kingdom and live forever under the the banner of His loving rule. You are aware of your inheritance, the unfading nature of your wealth as a partaker of the glory to be revealed, knowing that you don't need the glory of men. You don't need the glory of the world when you are a child of the glorious God. It means believing the gospel, that Christ's death was sufficient to make atonement for your sins. You don't add to it. His righteousness becomes your righteousness, and you stand in that security. It means trusting his promise of a good work begun that he will complete in your life. And finally, it means that you love and you desire to hear and follow the voice of your father. When it says there in that last verse, he is the God who calls you. That is the present tense. That's not just a a once off event that happened in our past. He did call to us and that's how we were saved, but it is a present tense verb. It is the ongoing and controlling act in our sanctification. God's call does not cease. His shepherding does not end. It leads us inevitably into his fold. His voice leads us through darkness to light, through the valley of the shadow of death to life. When we fall, it bids us rise. When winters freeze, hardens our heart, his voice thaws our hearts out. And when Satan, sin, and the world block our ears, his call rings out in our hearts. Our God is the Father who calls. And to live a life worthy of God is to love his voice. I pray he has been calling today. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your voice. We are grateful for your word. We are needy. We are beggars. We know in ourselves we are not worthy of you. We are not worthy of what you have done for us. And yet we find ourselves your adopted children, loved eternally by you. We pray that you would more and more make the family business our business. Your kingdom, our desire. Your glory, our reward. Oh, be glorified in your church as we love one another. God, I pray that you would protect your church in a dangerous season. Where the love of many has grown cold. Where the commitment of many is still growing cold, Lord, I pray that you would lead us on to something else, that the light of your love would shine as we love one another and care for one another, even as mothers and fathers care for their own children. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.